Hey there, and welcome to Bible Center Church Online. It's great to have you with us. Uh, Bible Center family, thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning in. And all those of you who are guests, uh, thank you for being with us today. Whether you be online, whether you be on TV, it's so great to have you here. I'm Pastor Matt. I'd love to meet you next time our paths cross. We're still praying that we could get back together again uh, in person very, very soon. But until then, uh, we're so glad again you can be with us. I want to invite you to go ahead and open your Bible or your Bible app to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to dive into Mark chapter 8. So if you want to go ahead and turn there, we'll also have the words uh, up here beside me. And as you're turning, I want to invite you to join us for the entire series. This morning we kick off a brand new series entitled Epic Easter. Epic Easter for the three weeks uh, leading up to Easter. It's going to be very, very easy for us to have epidemics and pandemics on our mind going into Easter. Uh, But God invites us to have uh, Easter, to have resurrection, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ on our hearts and on our minds as we head into Easter Sunday here in a couple weeks. And so be praying about that. I invite you to join us. This morning, the very, very first message in this series is epic discouragement. All three sermons will be out of the Gospel of Mark. And one of the themes that we see in Mark's Gospel is one of discouragement, one of despair. You see it just woven in to the Gospel. And we're going to look this morning at the reaction of the disciples when life didn't quite work out the way they wanted it to work out. And then next, next weekend, we're going we're gonna to look at epic discovery. The disciples discover something on a mountain, the Mount of Transfiguration, it's often called. Uh, some of us were there uh, a month or so ago in Israel celebrating uh, what Jesus did. But we're going to look at that story from the Gospel of Mark chapter 9. And then on Easter Sunday, we're going to see epic decision. John Mark, the author of this gospel, leaves the, the whole book with almost a a decision for us to make. He leaves it open-ended. In other words, will we make Jesus Christ our King? Will we make Jesus our Lord? And so I invite you to have some uh, friends and family watch with you on Easter Sunday, and we're praying for epic decisions uh, in the good news of Jesus Christ. But thanks again for joining us. I want to start this morning with uh, just a little trip down memory lane. Since so many of us have been quarantined lately, uh, I've been looking through some old pictures and my wife and I having some memories of our children when they were little. And one of the pictures that I found was from my childhood, uh, back when I played football for Hayes Junior High School down in St. Albans, not too far from here. And this is our football team. We look rough and tough, I know. And, and then uh, there's, there I am, number 86. There I am. I look like I'm three years old, but I think I might have been 14 or so there. And when I was going through the old pictures, I was remembering how our coach would tell us over and over again in football practice, no pain, no gain. No pain, no gain. He would say that over and over again. And so it was those hot August days where we had two practices a day. We'd go in the morning. We'd come back late in the afternoon. We'd be running laps with all of our gear on. And he, we just wanted to quit. We just wanted to stop. And he would say, no pain, no gain. We had these big sleds, just heavy metal sleds that felt like they weighed 10,000 pounds. I'm sure they didn't. But we would hit those and push those all the way across the field. And he would tell us, no pain, no gain. 
And, and then I remember one of the drills we used to do was called the hamburger drill. They probably don't let people do it today, but back when we played, you would put one person in the middle of the football team and the entire team would circle around that one person and they would all have numbers and you never knew whose number was going to be called. And sometimes multiple numbers were called and they would dive into the middle and hit you from all different directions and you felt like you were just going to die. And our coach would say, no pain, no gain. Well, there's a reason I didn't like football and there's a reason I wasn't very good at football because I don't like pain. But this principle of, of no pain, no gain is a life principle that we word in many different ways. Another way to word it might be work comes before winning. Sacrifice comes before success. Payment before payout. Before we can enjoy the mountaintop view, we must first climb the mountain. And on and on it goes. You know, I was thinking about my grandparents. All, all my grandparents are now with the Lord in heaven. But my grandparents would, I don't think I ever heard them say no pain, no gain. But the way they lived uh, so much of their life exemplified this philosophy. It seems like it was just ingrained in them coming up through the Great Depression and World War II and all that was involved in those days. But something seems to have happened to our society today. Not any one particular age group, but it seems to have affected or infected almost uh, all aspects of society. And that is so often we seem to want our gain before we want our pain. We want our gain now before we want our pain. Now, sometimes this is very, very helpful. I'm so glad that we have Amazon. And with Amazon being down or somewhat down during this crisis, it certainly puts us all at a disadvantage. I love finding a book that I want that maybe I can't get locally. And with a click of a button, they'll have it to my front door sometimes within 24 hours. I am so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that when I'm doing research, I can do so much of it now with a click of a button. Uh, so much easier than when I was a kid and had to, had to learn to do it other ways. But it also has some downfalls. It has a downside. And that is, in our society, it's, it's very, very easy for us to, maybe at the click of a button, to experience temptation or to experience sin or in a matter of 10 seconds or less to gossip about someone uh, that we're supposed to be loving and protecting. It's very, very easy for us to incur massive amounts of debt uh, because we can get our gain before we get our pain. It seems that being forced to wait on things is one of the biggest struggles of this pandemic. As I've talked to many of you this past week and talked with some of my friends that uh, many of us, thank the Lord, aren't sick, we're not ill, but we're just inconvenienced. And in our inconvenience, there are certain, there are certain ways that we're agitated. Uh, we get aggravated. Maybe we, we are frustrated or we feel like we're no longer in control. Maybe we're anxious or depressed or discouraged. And maybe you're sitting there today in your kitchen or your living room or, or your bedroom and you're wondering, how can you process all these emotions? How can you process all of these feelings? Well, what are we supposed to do with all this? How do we make sense out of what's going on in this crisis? 
I am so thankful that the Bible speaks clearly and without question to all of this. In the next few minutes, I'm gonna share with you one major principle from God's word that I hope helps you make sense, uh, not only today, uh, but helps you make sense of life tomorrow, uh, makes, helps you make sense of life the next day when you're uh, in traffic or you're wrestling for toilet paper or whatever it is you're doing, that what we're gonna learn today helps you make sense of this current crisis. So I always like to tell you at the very beginning how the sermon will go. So I'm gonna give you one principle, one thing Jesus wants us to learn, and then I'm gonna give us three things Jesus wants us to do. One thing Jesus wants us to learn and three things Jesus wants us to do. Well, I said a while ago, we're gonna dive into Mark chapter eight. And so let me go ahead and invite you to look at Mark chapter eight and verse 31. And I'll start reading there and invite you to follow along with me. Mark eight thirty-one. He, Jesus, then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. And then he called the crowd to him, verse 34. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whosoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. That was Mark chapter 8. Turn with me, if you will, now to Mark chapter 9, just maybe over a couple of pages. Mark chapter 9 and verse 30, we're going to see Jesus say something similar on this second occasion. Mark chapter 9 and verse 30. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. But they did not, think of this, they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. So that was the second time Jesus gave him uh, that prophecy. Now we're going to look at the third time. Mark chapter 10, you want to turn over another page or so. Mark chapter 10 in verse 32. Jesus said this, or Mark says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. There's that aspect of fear and discouragement again. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said. And the Son of Man, talking about himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. That was Mark 10, 32 through 34. Now we just read three different passages, one from Mark 8, one from Mark 9, and one from Mark 10. 
And I want to show you, want to take a minute and show you why that's so significant. To help you understand, the, help us understand the way Mark is laid out, here's the way the gospel of Mark is organized. Chapters 1 through 7 deal with Jesus' ministry in the north. We call that Galilee, northern part of Israel. And then in chapter 11 through 16, he goes to the cross in Jerusalem. It was in Jerusalem, there in the south, where he experienced not only the cross, but thankfully three days later, the empty tomb. But in between those two sections, there's a journey. And Mark lays out his gospel geographically. Really, chapters 1 through 7 is Jesus in the north. And in chapter 8, 9, and 10, he begins to head south down into Jerusalem. And it was on that journey south that Jesus gave the disciples at least three prophecies, three opportunities for them to understand what was going to happen when he arrived in Jerusalem. He was going to be rejected. He was going to go to the cross. So chapters 8 through 10 are pivotal. The disciples finally begin to understand in chapters 8, 9, and 10 that Jesus is the king that he's the anointed one. That was a kingly word, the word Messiah. Uh, Jesus was uh, the son of God in the flesh. They begin to understand that, but they didn't understand why Jesus kept saying he was going to die. Because when they looked at their Bibles, the, what we call the Old Testament, they saw, Jesus, they saw the Messiah conquering the world. They saw every knee bowed to the Messiah and they couldn't understand why Jesus kept saying he was going to die. They wanted him to go in and conquer Rome, to set up a, a kingdom of peace and prosperity and health and wealth. That's what they wanted. But Jesus told them on three occasions, that's going to come later. That's still in our lifetime. That's still yet to come for Jesus to return the second time. But Jesus wanted them to understand that on his first coming, he was going to die. He was going to be the suffering servant that we see in the book of Isaiah. Jesus tried to get them to understand that there was a cross before a crown. That he had to go to the cross before he would receive, at least from the world, the crown. And so today that brings us to our big idea. This is the big idea I wanna, want us to remember as we go throughout the week. Just four words, easy to remember. No cross, no crown. No cross, no crown. Now the church for hundreds of years, really for a couple thousand years, uh, they've referred to this statement in a number of different ways. Uh, Francis Quarles said it this way about 500 or so years ago. He that hath no cross deserves no crown. William Penn said it this way, no thorns, no throne, no gall, no glory, no cross, no crown. Spurgeon said, there are no crown wearers in heaven who were not first cross bearers here below. Cross bearers here below, think of that. And then we find that J.C. Ryle, closer to our, uh, in our age, said a cheap Christianity without a cross will prove in the end a useless Christianity without a crown. I don't want cheap Christianity for me. I don't want that for my children. I don't want that for my friends. I don't want that for my church. And I don't believe you want that either. So the cross comes before the crown. 
Billy Graham made an observation. He said, some of us, and this is so true, some of us want the crown before the cross. Unfortunately, some of us want the crown before the cross. No cross, no crown. That's what I'd like you to remember today. Now think with me for a minute. How would the disciples receive this news? Uh, What kind of emotions might they have felt? Uh, What kind of things would have gone through their mind when Jesus is telling them, no, you've got to have the cross before you have the crown. And Jesus even told them not only was he going to die, but they were also going to suffer for the gospel if they wanted to be crowned. Think about what would have gone through their minds. For most of us, for most of us, there's nothing we're going to face today that's going to be as intense as what they felt when they knew Jesus was going to die. But nevertheless, our fears and our depression and our discouragement and our anxiety or whatever we want to call it, it's still very real to us. And so while God wants us to know this, no cross, no crown, I want to give you three applications today. Three applications. And I'll tell you right up front where we're going to get these three applications from. We're going to get them from three ways the disciples responded incorrectly. So we're going to see the mistakes that they made, and we're going to try by God's grace not to make the same mistakes. And so let me give you those three applications, three practical points that you can put into use at home, at work, uh, in your neighborhoods, even during this crisis. Number one, what does Jesus want us to do? Put God's plans before your own plans. Put God's plans before your own plans. So simple, but yet requiring the grace of God. Mark chapter 8, if you turn back with me to Mark chapter 8, in Mark 8 and verse 32, we're going to see Peter's response to the first of three prophecies. Mark chapter 8 and verse 32. Jesus, he spoke plainly about this. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Notice what he says. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. So what we see in Mark chapter 8 is Jesus alluding to the fact that God has always had the cross as a part of his plan. God has always had the cross as being central to his plan for humanity. This isn't something that Jesus thought up or that God the Father thought up at the last minute. But actually, Revelation 13, 8 tells us that the lamb was slain, Jesus was slain before the foundation of the world. All the way back in the Garden of Eden and before the Garden of Eden, in eternity past, Ephesians chapter 1, this was in the plan of God. The problem was it it wasn't in the plan of Peter. In Peter's mind, to follow the Messiah, to follow Jesus, meant to have a life with no suffering. In Peter's mind, to follow the king meant that you were going to be treated like royalty. And so he rebukes Jesus. Jesus, why are you being so negative? Why are you saying that we're going to suffer? And Jesus rebukes Peter very, very sternly. I'll ask you today, what about your view of life? In your view of life, as you understand the Bible and as you understand God, 
Is there a place in your worldview for suffering? I mean, think about cancer. Is there a place where you can wrap your mind around and unfortunately many of you are right now because of what you or a loved one are going through. But I like to ask all of us, is your view of God big enough to believe that God could actually allow and even orchestrate uh, us going through suffering, something like cancer or something like getting our jobs cut or something like the, the stock market experiencing devastating loss or struggles with children that seem insurmountable, or living through a depressed economy, or living in a depressed economic area. Is God big enough to have planned that for your life? Or even the death of a loved one? Is God big enough for that? Last night, my wife and I were with a close family member and friend, someone that we love very, very much, who received some devastating news uh, here recently, just in the last few days, a cancer diagnosis that doesn't look good. And to watch her faith, to watch her turn to Jesus, the, the Jesus of her childhood, and for her to be able to say that she is in so much peace because she knows Jesus is in control. I went there, my wife and I went there last night to comfort her and we left comforted to see that she knows that God is still in control. Now, I wanna make you a promise that if I come to your hospital room, if I come to your hospital bed at some occasion, or if I come to your home in a time of suffering, I'm gonna make you a promise by God's grace, I'm not going to say, well, this must be in God's will. I'm not going to flippantly quote a verse like all things work together for good. Uh, none of our pastors and shepherds, none of us will do that. But I do now from this platform in a time of, of love and a time of concern and in a time of teaching, I want to encourage you to truly do believe that all things are in Jesus's control, that all things are in Jesus's hand. And though when we come together in a time of suffering, we may just hold hands and pray and cry together, I want you to know before you go through the storm that God knows and controls all things. He has a plan for our lives. Look with me at Spurgeon's quote. I love this. So simple. One of our teachers at Bible Center School, her, her mother is going through some real intense health difficulties and it's not looking good. And recently I saw this quote on her Facebook page and, and wanted to share it. Spurgeon said over 150 years ago, I have learned to kiss the wave that throws me against the rock of ages. How could you say that? Why would you say that? I think the answer comes in four words. No cross, no crown. No cross, no crown. We believe on the other side of our suffering that there is the crown of life. Number two, what does Jesus want us to do? Number two, during this crisis, we can put others' needs before our own. Put others' needs before your own needs. Mark chapter 9 and verse 33. This is the second prophecy and the, the reaction to the prophecy. So Jesus tells his disciples three times, I'm going to die. This is the, third, the second occasion where the disciples respond. Notice what happens. 
Mark chapter 9. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, verse 33, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and he said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them. Taking the child in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. <coughs> Excuse me. Think about the people in your life that you try to love. Anytime we reach out to love someone, it's going to cost us something. When we love someone, essentially we are giving them a piece of ourselves and we are saying we're going to take the loss so that you don't have to take the loss. If you've ever tried to love somebody who has a lot of needs, maybe they're, you consider them a needy person, or someone who has a lot of emotional needs or even physical needs, it's going to cost us something. We can't love without taking a hit ourselves. A transfer of some kind is always required so that somehow their troubles, their problems, transfer to you. Now, where has this been taking place over the last week or two? In our house, it's been taking place with our children. I believe I'm speaking to, no doubt, some moms or uh, some dads, some grandmas or grandpas, and, and you especially, speaking to the moms for a moment, you, your life perhaps has been turned upside down. You had plans for the children. You know what they would do in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening. Maybe they homeschool already, or maybe they're in public school or in Christian school. But no matter what, your life has been turned upside down. And I just want to speak to a moment and encourage you that, that I believe you're living out what I'm sharing right now much more than most of us are. The sacrifices and love that you're giving right now are showing Jesus, by the way, uh, that you're meeting needs. Our kids depend on us. They always depend on us, even during a time of health. For 20 or so years, God calls us for each of our children to give up our independence so that they can learn how to be independent on their own. It is a massive, a massive joy, but also a massive sacrifice. Not every book you read to them will be interesting. Not every story that they want to share will be necessarily interesting. And then there's dressing and bathing and feeding and teaching them to do things for themselves. I read this week that children need five affirmations for every one criticism. Uh, every time we have to speak into their life honestly or, or firmly, uh, they need at least five affirmations for that. That takes sacrifice. I mean, think about what love is. Love is putting someone else's needs before your own. Love is putting someone else's needs before your own. Now that we have a little guy in the house, we're going back and we're reading many of the C.S. Lewis books and, and uh, heading back into Harry Potter. And, and it's exciting for us since our girls are older, our little eight-year-old boy, we're, we're showing him some things and, and letting him read some books that he's never read before. And, and I was just thinking the other day about the very first book, the very first Harry Potter book, uh, how you've got Harry's mother who sacrifices her life when the villain, Voldemort, uh, tries to touch him. And, 
And for some reason, the villain can't, can't hurt Harry and he can't touch Harry. Uh, and so he asks why. And this is the answer that Dumbledore gives. He says, your mother died to save you. Love as powerful as your mother leaves its own mark. Not a scar, no visible sign, but to have been loved so deeply will give you protection forever. Moms, I want to recommend a book to you this week because I know what so many of you or I've heard of what so many of you are going through. This book is entitled Mom Enough, The Fearless Mother's Heart and Hope. It's written by seven moms. And the premise of the book is to answer the question that many moms have that my wife asks, uh, am I enough? Am I enough? And many women ask that question, am I enough? And, and we quickly sometimes want to answer, yes, of course, you're enough. But this book takes the gospel-centered approach and reminds women, it reminds all of us, that actually none of us are enough. If you remember what Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. None of us are enough. Mom, don't worry, you're, you'll never be enough. But Jesus is enough. And during this crisis, during this pandemic, he's going to give you the grace and the strength to do all that he's called you to do. And so be encouraged. Jesus is enough. You know, thinking about meeting the needs of others points us back to the gospel story. This story of how Jesus came to meet a need that we had that we could never meet. Now, certainly God created us in his image, but unfortunately, sin broke us. We were broken and we couldn't save ourselves. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says that not by works of righteousness, which we have done, can we be saved. It requires the mercy, Ephesians 2 says, the grace of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So we couldn't save ourselves. So that's why Jesus came to meet a need that we couldn't meet. He lived a perfect life. He lived a life we couldn't live. He died on the cross to pay for the, the sacrifice for our sins, the penalty, the payment for our sins. He absorbed all the judgment that we deserved. And then thank God he died, but three days later he rose again the third day. Jesus lives to give us new life. And so if you've never yet believed the gospel, if you've never yet trusted in the gospel, know that the only way that you'll ever have the power to, to meet people's eternal needs is to let Jesus meet your eternal need. Jesus stepped in to meet a need that nobody else could meet. Jesus models this for us. No cross, no crown. And the same is still true in our lives today. No matter how long we've walked with Jesus, no cross, no crown. We've got to go through the cross. We've got to suffer. We're going to have hard days in order for us to be rewarded the way God wants to reward his children. There's one last thing that Jesus wants us to do. One last way we can respond, even in a crisis like this. Number three, put others' glory before your own glory. Put others' glory before your own glory. Now, I've said that there were three occasions, three prophecies that Jesus gave his disciples. So you would think that by the third, they would have an idea what was going on. You would think that they would know, okay, okay, Jesus is going to die. He's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. 
And then he's going to ascend into heaven, and one day he'll come back, and then he'll make his earthly kingdom known. But they still didn't get it. He said the same thing to them. So notice what happens on the third occasion. Jesus has just shared with them this news. And in Mark chapter 10 and verse 35, notice what James and John do. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's not a very humble way to approach Jesus. But nevertheless, Jesus responds, what do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in glory. You don't know what you were asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink of or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. They were sure they could. But Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. But not so with you. Instead, think of this, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. James and John, they wanted to be chief of staff and prime minister to Jesus. But Jesus said, you don't know what you're asking. They said, but Lord, we can, we can do exactly what you're going to do. We can go exactly where you're going to go. And they had no idea that he was going to the cross, even though they, he had told them that multiple, multiple times. Now, if you're like me, sometimes it's easy for us to read the Bible and to think, how could they not get it? How could they not get it? But instead of us today, instead of you right there where you sit, instead of you asking about the disciples, how could the disciples not get it? Let me ask you to to search your own heart. How can I, how can you not get it? Where is it that we continually seek our own glory our own popularity, our own attention, instead of taking opportunities to point to Jesus. Well, how about at work? Somebody gets a promotion or they get recognized instead of you. What are your first thoughts? How do you respond to those thoughts? Do you encourage them and seek to make others better than you? Or, or is it all about you? I guarantee it. If it's all about you, people will know around you that it's all about you. And that's not the way Jesus invites us to live. What about at church? Let's say somebody gets an opportunity to minister and maybe they're in in front of more people than you. How do you feel? What about at home? What about if your your sister or your brother, for those of you who still live at home with siblings, uh, do you get jealous when maybe they get something that you don't? It's something we all wrestled with when we were kids. And something my children still wrestle with. Just to remember that, that it's all of grace. It's all of God's goodness. How do you respond on social media when somebody has more followers than you? Or somebody gets more attention than you? 
Paul, the apostle, says in Philippians chapter 2, let us seek to honor others more than we honor ourselves. This is what he's inviting us to, to not seek our glory first, but to seek the glory and honor of others, people, to literally make heroes of the people around us more than we want to be a hero ourselves. Only the work of the Spirit, only the gospel could do this in our hearts. I want to finish today by telling you the story about a man who lived 300 years ago, and he learned a lesson about no cross, no crown. Uh, His full name is Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf, uh, but we're going to call him Nicholas for short. He was born in in 1700 uh, into great wealth, great privilege. At the age of 19, his parents sent him to Europe or all around Europe and to some of the larger cities to complete his education. And on one of his visits, uh, Nicholas was visiting an art museum. And as he was going through the art museum, he saw this painting, this particular painting of Jesus with the crown of thorns by Domenico Fetti. And beneath the painting, there was this inscription. It was in Latin, but in English, it says this. This I have suffered for you. Now what will you do for me? This I have suffered for you. Now what will you do for me? That broke Nicholas's heart. Here he was living for himself, away from his parents, enjoying every pleasure that a 19-year-old young man would want to enjoy. And he's looking into the broken eyes of Jesus, wearing the crown of thorns. And he said, I felt it was though Jesus was asking me, this is what I've done for you. Now what will you do for me? At the age of 19, he made a decision. I'm going to give my life for the Jesus who gave himself for me. Though he had great power and great privilege and great wealth, he spent his 60 years, his remaining 41 years on earth, giving to other people so that the gospel could be known. Through his support, the gospel went all over the, what would later become the United States. The gospel went all over Germany. The gospel went all over South America and Russia. When he died, there was a, a, a new denomination. The Moravian Church of Germany had been founded through his generous support because he said, this is what Jesus has done for me. I'm going to give myself for him. About a hundred years later, there was a dear lady, Frances Havergale, who was walking through the same museum. She saw the same painting and she read the same words in Latin beneath Jesus that Frances Havergale took out a piece of paper and she scribbled down the words to what would become this hymn. I gave my life for thee, my precious blood I shed, that thou mightest ransom be and risen from the dead. I suffered much for thee, more than my tongue can tell, of bitterest agony to rescue thee from hell. I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? I gave, I gave my life for thee. What hast thou given for me? I want to encourage you in this crisis. I believe Jesus is inviting you in this crisis. Put God's plans before your own. Put the needs of others before your own needs. And put the glory, put the attention, put the fame of others before you try to draw it and seek it for yourself. You say, Pastor Matt, why would I do that? 
why would I want to live that way? Because remember, no cross, no crown. Jesus gave his life for you. Now why not give your life for him?